This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis 45. If you don't have a Bible, there are some provided on the side shelves there. You'll find Genesis 45 on page 36 in those Bibles that are provided. You'd be really helped to have a copy of God's Word just in front of you, whether on your phone or a a hard copy as we go through this text together. So let's prepare our hearts now to be addressed by God's Word and ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, this day that you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. We don't deserve it. Lord, you have poured out mercy on us just for us to be here and to hear your word read and to sing together and to hear your word preached. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your great mercy and love. Lord, we pray that you would do a miracle this morning. Lord, so many of us are stuck in different areas, in different ways. Would you change that? Would you loose the bonds that may be shackling us that we don't even see and know about? Would you do a powerful work through your word? Lord, we have great anticipation because you have inspired this word. It is your word breathed out. And we know that it points to Jesus. And we know that it's for us today. And so, Lord, would you just come? Help us. Be near to us, Lord. We need you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been reading through Luke's gospel on Sundays... You've noticed we're coming toward the end, and we're getting very close to one of my favorite Bible passages in Luke 24, verses 25 and 27. Maybe you're familiar with that text. Uh, it's that seven-mile journey from these, these two disciples of Jesus, or followers of Jesus, to Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're walking, they're talking about all the events in the last few days that that had to do with Jesus. And as they're talking, the resurrected Son of God walks up behind them, in my mind, and joins the conversation. Luke says specifically, Jesus himself drew near to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And that, that really made me think about Joseph's brothers and Joseph, our text today, as we're thinking about the revelation of Joseph. So he asks them about their conversation topic. What are you guys talking about? And they just, Luke says they just stand there looking sad. And they recount all the things that had happened to Jesus from his mighty deeds and words to his condemnation and death and crucifixion and burial. They hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But now it's been three days. And another thing, some of our women, our friends, 
have gone to the tomb on Sunday and said it was empty. And they also said some angels talked to them about Jesus and said he was alive. So there's that. We don't know what happened to the body. So they're hopeless and they're discouraged. And then Jesus, without revealing himself, responds this way. In Luke 24, verse 25, he says, And and he said to them, O foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I think you could say, beginning with Genesis, he interpreted to them all the things concerning himself. Oh, to be on that journey, on that walk, to hear Jesus' Old Testament theology lecture to these men, pointing to himself, explaining how these things apply to him. But what he have said about the garden, about Noah and the flood? What do you have said about the fall? Abraham and Isaac, Jacob. What did he say about Joseph and his brothers? This morning we're continuing our study of the first book of Moses. And we've gotten to that part of the journey. That part in Jesus' lesson. We said last time, uh, in fact, that this entire section of Genesis devoted to Joseph and his brothers, culminates in chapters 44 and 45. And I've got the slide up again this morning of of verses of chapters 35 through 50, and you can put that up there, that are shaped in that chiastic shape. Um, And and you see there in the middle of that that shape, the way Moses is is shaping this this section, is highlighting, um, you know, each section is matching one another, and then it gets down to this crescendo in chapters 44 and 45 that, that highlight uh, in chapter 44 Judah's self sacrificial love, and then in chapter 45 Joseph's forgiveness of his repentant brothers. That's the, the center point of this, this structure that Moses, you see it underlined there in bold, that Moses is giving us the story. And it's important for us to see how, how Jesus would have understood and even pointed to these passages. We saw in chapter 44, Joseph giving his brothers that final test, if you remember. After a long night of eating and drinking, he sent them back to their father with their money in their sacks that they had bought for, brought for grain. And then he put in Benjamin's sack his own personal silver cup. And so when his servants came and confronted the brothers, the cup was found and they tore their clothes together and began to make this long trek back to Egypt preparing for the worst. They had offered to die for whoever was found with the cup. And then they were certainly talking about lifetime of slavery for the person who was found, who was guilty, and that was Benjamin. But it was then that one of the brothers stood up, if you remember. Judah offered to take Benjamin's place. So that he could go free and go back to Jacob and be spared. We uh, read of that stand in chapter 44. Look there with me at verse 33. Now therefore please let your servant remain, this is Judah speaking, instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. 
For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And so we, we see that Judah is a new man. He's expressing his love to his father, who didn't always reciprocate that love, offering himself as a sacrifice. Unlike Reuben, if you remember, Reuben offered his sons as a sacrifice. Judah offers himself. He didn't commit the crime, but he offers to pay the penalty for the crime. This is Christ-like love. What would Jesus have said about Judah's confession? And friends, when Joseph sees it and Joseph hears it, he is overcome. He not only reveals himself, but he's going to reveal God's redeeming love to his brothers. And that's where we, we find ourselves here in Genesis 45. These are the things that I'm praying that God would allow us to see. Later in Luke 24, we read that Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures. Oh, that God would do that with us. That we would see the things concerning Jesus. So we look at this passage, we're going to look at it in three scenes. And you'll see the, the outline here, um, as, if you're taking notes. Uh, scene one, we're going, to, we're going to use the heading of providence. Some of the most important verses that we'll find about the doctrine of providence in verses 1 to 15. Scene two, we'll see provision, verses 16 to 24. And finally, scene three, proclamation, verses 25 to 28. Sacrificial love, undeserved forgiveness, reconciliation, salvation, sinners brought near to the one that they've offended and betrayed, resurrection, and trust in the sovereign, providential hand of God. This is what's before us in Genesis 45. Let's look at our first scene, which comes right on the heels of Judah's confession, offer of sacrifice. We'll call it number one, providence. Look at verse 1 of chapter 45. This is God's word. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everybody go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. You may have read this text before and you may have read ahead and you know what's happening. But I just want to invite you to put yourself kind of in the shoes, particularly of the brothers. You know, they've got all this evidence stacked against them. The money in their sacks is there. The cup has been found. And now it's as if Joseph is melting down. You could see from their perspective, like this is it. He's had enough and he's sending people out from us. Maybe he's about to do something to us that he doesn't want witnesses for. He's about to bring in an execution squad. We don't know. He's weeping so loud. The Egyptians and, and Pharaoh's representatives, maybe they're standing outside the door. They're hearing it. But then the unthinkable happens there in verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph looks at them in the eyes with his own voice in their own language and says, I am Joseph. He immediately asks about his father, my father, 
Not your father, as he's been discussing it before. My father. But the brothers are completely dumbfounded. That they can't speak a word. The word uh, is dismayed. It means something like terrified or being in paralyzing fear. Uh, It's the same uh, reaction that we see in Psalm 2, verse 5. When the Lord speaks there to the proud rebels, He speaks to them in His wrath, and they are terrified in His fury. It's this, they, they have raged and plotted against the Lord, and He speaks to them, and they are terrified. It's this picture of being found guilty before the Lord of all creation. They're terrified. So just imagine the realization that's landing on the brothers. Not only is Joseph alive, this is not initially good news, He's in a position of authority over us, over all. He has power to inflict upon us the greatest revenge, the worst torture, power of life and death are in his hands. So so they are terrified because they know what they have done and they know what they deserve. And friends, this is the reality of the human condition. Our biggest issue in life is that we will one day stand before the one who knows Everything that we have ever done. Who knows all that we have ever thought. David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. Friend, if you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I need you to think about this with me. Grapple with this reality. You know, sometimes the things in our past tend to eat at us. They come up at different times in our lives. Things that we know are wrong. Things that we know are maybe evil. One day they will be revealed. And our response on that day, if we try to justify ourselves, if we try to explain ourselves and say, well, okay, let me me help you understand why I did this. Let me give you the context. Our mouths will be stopped. We will be like the brothers in stunned silence. There is nothing we can say. That's what I would be thinking if I was Simeon or Levi, or Judah. We're doomed. We're helpless. It's over. Our sin is finally caught up with us. We have no hope. But then, just like when Jesus comes and interrupts the conversation, the hopeless conversation of His disciples on the road to Emmaus, and comes near to them, look at what we read in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you have sold into Egypt. And look at verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Can you imagine... Come near. Please. Please come near to me. He wants them to come near. What the brothers, what would they be thinking? We hated you. We betrayed you. Note the phrase that he uses, the one you sold into Egypt. We betrayed you. We threw you in the pit. We lied about our sin. We covered up our sin. We laughed when you begged for us for help. We lied to our father. And Joseph says, I am your brother. We are family. Come near to me. 
Don't you hear the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And can it be? And can it be? Died he for me who caused his pain. Amazing love. How can it be? Joseph has forgiven them. Joseph is extending grace to them. Look again at verse 5. He tells them not to be angry or distressed about their sin. He is pointing them away from their sin and toward God's grace and God's providence. Beloved, some of us need to hear that exact thing this morning. That thing. To to let our gaze go away from dwelling on our sin and look to Jesus Christ. Robert Murray McShane, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God, believer. Look to Christ. Joseph has not been nursing a grudge against his brothers. He has been walking with God. And he has understood the love and grace of God. And he now extends it to those that do not deserve it. He forgives them. And that forgiveness, we'll see, is tied to a belief in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Notice the the escalating emphasis that Joseph puts here on these statements about God's providence, about God's control of all things. So let's look at verse 5 again. Start there. And now, do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt." These, friends, are some of the most classic and important statements here at the end of the book of Genesis in the Bible about understanding the providence of God. Joseph's theology about God, his belief about God, causes him to reinterpret the the story of his life and and have God at the center God's the the first word that he says, go tell Jacob something about about what God has done. He believes in a sovereign God. God sent me? Friends, we've been studying this together. Don't you remember what's happened? The brothers scheming, hating him, throwing him in a pit, selling him into slavery. God sent me for a good purpose. To preserve life. A remnant, he says. That's, That's language that we later see in the prophets describing what God is doing to save a people to bring out of exile. It's what we saw in Genesis 6, with God saving a people through the flood, and Noah, in Genesis 19, and Lot and his daughters in Sodom. God sent me. He goes as far in verse 8 to say, it was not you, but God. That's how much he's putting the emphasis on God's sovereignty. Doesn't remove the consequences for their sin, for their actions, We've seen all the earthly consequences for what's happened. The ripple effects from their sin. 
but it does highlight the invisible, powerful hand of God that works all things, including the sinful, evil actions of human creatures, together for the good of his people. He says there in verse 8 that God made him a father of Pharaoh. That, that phrase is a technical term for a vizier or an advisor. It just means he advises Pharaoh. Pharaoh goes to him for, for counsel. But do you remember how he got there? Slavery. The dungeon. Being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Back into prison. And then being overlooked for years. Just sitting there in the darkness. Until finally God brings him out. God sent him. God made him. The person that he is standing before his brothers. And it was mainly through suffering. Friends, it's so important that we would just build our lives on the Bible. It's so important in this room right now that we put these truths into our hearts and minds. Here's why. We almost never get the perspective that Joseph has now of the complete kind of circle, the end game of what God was doing the whole, in the whole process through our suffering and pain. We almost never get that whole, that, that whole idea where he says, well, obviously God has done this for, for the good of many. And you can see with your own eyes how that's happening now. Our stories are in process. And sometimes we may never see the end until glory. It may not and usually isn't a neat and tidy story like this where we see it. But that's why it's here for us to see it, to build our theology. Our theology of suffering and trusting in the Lord. To know God is good, always good. To know that He's in control, always in control. But we don't always know what He's doing. We don't always know the why behind our suffering. And many in this room are suffering. So we have passages like Genesis 45. And testimonies like this one from Joseph. That say, 22 years of separation from my father. 22 years of walking in this suffering. God sent me. So we can say something like, I don't know all the answers. I know it's really hard. I know I'm struggling. I'm not sure what God is doing. But I trust Him imperfectly. But I trust Him. With Job, though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Job 13, 15. I think this is the Christian life, beloved, on this side of glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. By faith, we believe that God has a plan. By faith, we press on. By faith, we hold on because He holds on to us. This doesn't make us robots. Belief in a sovereign God does not remove the difficulty and the effect that suffering has on us from our emotions. Joseph is broken down multiple times in this narrative 
And now he is, we call it ugly crying. He's wailing so loud everyone in Egypt, you know, is hearing. All the pain and betrayal and hurt and pent up emotion, it's just, it's just coming out. And so as a body, let's pray toward ministering kind of in this tension. When we walk through suffering and walk through it together with others, it's not a cold, we're not, we, we don't want to be a cold people that just quote verses about God's sovereignty to people when they are in loss and pain. We want to be patient with people as they deal with their suffering and deal with the reality of loss in their life. Deal with disappointment at various levels. We don't need to pretend that it doesn't hurt. To pretend that our life is a wreck because of it. We can point one another to the hope that we have in Scripture while we weep with those who weep. For as long as it takes. There's no timetable that we have to meet and your pain should be over by now, your suffering should be done by this date. It's in God's timing. So may God give us patience as we love one another well, understanding the sovereignty of God and His goodness to us. God ordained the worst thing that ever happened on the planet. And He worked it together for our salvation. Peter says to the Jews in Acts 2, listen to the balance here. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's Acts 2, 23 and 24. Or again in Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God ordained the most evil event in history in order to preserve life. To save His people from an eternity in wrath-bearing hell. To exalt His Son, Jesus Christ. But this does not exclude us from human responsibility. Listen to the way Jesus talks about this balance as He's referencing Judas. Luke 22, verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom He is betrayed. So this is, I think, a link for us between sovereignty of God and forgiveness that we see in our passage. When we realize the biggest concern that we have, our biggest problem is not what others have done to us, but it's what we have done to God. Our sin against God, that's our our biggest problem. Not to minimize how terrible things are that have happened to us, but if God could reconcile that sin to Himself... Through His Son, we are now freed from bitterness and desire for for vengeance. Because God is just. He is just and He is merciful. No sin goes unpunished. And so we can pursue reconciliation with those who have wronged us. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. 
That's what's happening here in Genesis 45. Let's pick it up again in verse 9. Again, Joseph speaking to his brothers. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You can dwell in the land of Goshen. You, you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, after that, his brothers talked with him. I love that. Here you see the main reason why Jacob would leave God's promised land, why he would leave Canaan. Uh, it's the famine. The famine is still going, and there are still five years to go. So, and, and by the way, the famine is no surprise to God. God sends the famine, and he, he brings Joseph to Egypt for a reason. He's going to bring Israel there for a reason, too. And he's already said that he was going to do this back in Genesis 15. We read there in Genesis 15, verse 13, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. We don't know much about the exact location of where they're going in Goshen. We know it's going to be close to where Joseph is. They're going to dwell near him, which I think is great. Joseph makes all this clear notice to the brothers and especially to Benjamin because I think he knows his father sees Benjamin as a credible witness. The other brothers, a little bit sketchy. He can, he, but Benjamin, he can, he can trust he says, the words are coming out of my mouth. There's no interpreter anymore. And before he sends them away, he breaks down again and weeps with Benjamin and his brothers. And he kisses them. Another reference, I think, to Psalm 2. Kiss the son. And they, they talk together. This is true reconciliation for this family. And it's, it's beautiful. If you remember back in chapter 37, the brothers hated Joseph so much that it says they couldn't speak peacefully to him. And now they're, they're talking together. They're reconciled and they're family. We'll say more on that in a minute. But let's look at the next scene together now. And we'll, we'll just use the heading of provision. Provision, verses 16 to 24. At some point this report reaches Pharaoh's house. And so we read of the response in, there in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers had come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. God is providing more than they would have asked or imagined. 
Pharaoh offers the best of the land, all the goods and supplies they could possibly need or want, the fat of the land, the most rich agricultural sections of the land, the fruit is theirs. And it just reminds us, I think, of the plenty that was available to Adam and Eve in the garden. They're leaving this land scorched by famine to this other land that is bursting with provision. There, there they will be cared for, and there they're going to multiply, as we'll see later in the biblical storyline. Look at verse 21. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So again, I just think we see a full measure of reconciliation that takes place between Joseph and his brothers. Did you notice the gifts that he gives them? Clothes, cloaks to the ones who stripped off his cloak in chapter 37. He gives Benjamin five changes of clothes, but also all the silver which was what the brothers were paid when they sold him into slavery. And I think these these tokens just act like seals on this renewed relationship that they have now that's reconciled together. Like the dinner they had before, Benjamin gets the most, but again, there's no grumbling over Benjamin's extra gifts. But just in case, Joseph warns them on the passage home, don't quarrel on the way. Why do you think he would say that? It could be because Benjamin's great gifts. Uh, maybe there was some other point of friction that they're, they're aware of, he's aware of. But I tend to think it has something to do with rehashing the evil events in, of Joseph's situation, their sin against Joseph. Because what are they about to do? They're about to tell their father what really happened. They're about to come clean. We know he told you it was a wild animal, but really it was us. We lied. We did evil to you and to our brother. But it was Judah's idea. It was Simeon who egged us on. Reuben might say, well, I tried this, but but they were too fast and they came and got him before I could come back. And so he says, don't quarrel about the details of your sin. Why? Because it is forgiven. It's forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't quarrel with each other. You're forgiven by the one you sinned against. Now you go and do likewise. Don't be like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 who was forgiven a great debt, but then went and choked out a smaller debt from someone else. And the master said, should you not have mercy as I have had mercy on you? Paul says it this way, beloved, 2 Corinthians 5.18, Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. James 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Beloved, we have the best thing. We have reconciliation with God. Don't quarrel along the way. Members at University Park Baptist Church, 
We've promised in our church covenant that, I quote, in love, we will seek reconciliation when we have wronged or been wronged by another. That means whether we are the offended party or the offender. Reconciliation is our goal. It's our end. Do you need to reconcile with someone in our congregation? Do you need to reconcile with someone in your family? What steps will you take to that end as someone who has been forgiven? As someone who has been reconciled? Finally, the brothers are prepared, they're provided for, and they arrive back in Canaan with Jacob. And that's the last scene that we'll consider briefly this morning under the heading of proclamation. Number three, proclamation. Pick it up there in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. Again, it's been some 22 years since Jacob has seen or heard from his son Joseph. He was around 17 years old when he disappeared. He was 30 years old when he entered into Pharaoh's service. We saw that in chapter 41, verse 46. And we already know that there's been seven years of plenty in the famine. So add seven years to that. He's 37. And now two years of famine. So he's around 39 years old. In Jacob's mind, Joseph is dead. He is gone. And the terms that Moses uses to describe what happened to Joseph, being in a pit, being in a dungeon, prison, are all terms that carry this connotation of death. And now he's hearing that he's alive. Jacob hears this as a claim, first, of resurrection. And his first response is similar to what the brothers felt in Joseph's presence. He is numb. He is bewildered. And he doesn't believe it at first. And this is the part where I think Jesus may have turned to the guys on the road to Emmaus and just say, hey, yeah, not everybody believes it at first. Sometimes it takes time. Look at verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. He must have looked at Benjamin first and said, really? You talk to him? And he looked around and he sees the gifts and he sees the wagons. Where could these have come from? And they told him all the words that Joseph had spoken. And of course, this would have included their own confession of sin and guilt. They come clean. They tell, we would say, the whole story. And friends, it's easy to confess our sin freely. And it's easy for them because not only is their brother alive, not only is he ruling and reigning in all the land, he has extended forgiveness for their sin. The king has shown them Mercy, so they don't need to hide their sin. 
What a key for us to remember in our relationships with one another. We can be, those of us who are believers, who have had our sins forgiven, we're accepted by God. We can be ourselves with others and be open about our struggles and sins with one another and confess them and repent and be healed. We don't have to pretend that we're not like every other human being on the planet that's a sinner. The ones that had harmed him and hated him, that left him, were reconciled to him. And when Jacob hears these things, his heart does a kind of resurrection itself. He believes and says, let's go to Egypt. Friends, if you look at the preaching of the apostles in the New Testament, it doesn't look too different than this right here. They're announcing a resurrection. They come saying that Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, who was betrayed and condemned by men, died on a cross, who did it out of a love for sinners, the very ones who put him to death. He went down into the pit of the grave, and three days later he came out of the tomb. Their preaching is essentially, Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave, and he now offers forgiveness for all who will believe in him. All that will, like the brothers, repent of their sin and receive grace that he offers. Friend, this is the best news you will ever hear. Will you believe? Will you consider what the Old Testament Scriptures say about Jesus? Would you consider what the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts say about Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection? Would you turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? Would you be saved? Would you follow Him? His offer is more than just forgiveness. It's complete reconciliation with the Father. He is our elder brother who welcomes us in, who says, come near, please, come near. Take your eyes off of your sin. Put them on me. Look to me like the Israelites who were snake-bitten in the wilderness. Look away to Christ and enjoy the forgiveness and reconciliation that He brings. Like Jacob, you can say, it is enough. Jesus is alive. He's alive. Those men on the road to Emmaus heard this. They heard about Joseph. They heard about Judah. About the forgiveness and reconciliation and love that pointed to Jesus. And they wanted more. So they invited this stranger over for dinner. For a meal. He reluctantly accepted and then Luke records this. Remember that we're taking the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. Luke 24 verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven... And those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus is alive. God is working all things together for good. For your good. Even the hard things. We can trust Him. And we can be content by God's 
grace. As Paul said in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Through Christ. The Christ who died and rose. The Christ who reigns. The Christ who forgives. Who says, come near. Walk by faith in Him. Not by sight. Because one day, we will see Him face to face. May it come quickly. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for your kindness to us. We take an eternity to account for all the wonderful things you've done that we have not deserved. Lord, we pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted, comfort the afflicted, lift up the eyes of those that don't feel worthy to be loved by you. Do what we can only ask for you to do. We can't do ourselves. We pray Christ would be exalted, Lord, as we grow together as a people and that our relationships would be centered on God, on you. Help us to minister well to our congregation and those around us with the strength that you provide. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.